welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Vinitali International Academy, announcing the 24th of our Italian Wine Ambassador courses to be held in London, Austria, and Hong Kong from the 27th to the 29th of July. Are you up for the challenge of this demanding course? Do you want to be the next Italian Wine Ambassador? Learn more and apply now at vinitaliinternational.com. Welcome to this special Italian wine podcast broadcast. This episode is a recording off Clubhouse, the popular drop-in audio chat. This Clubhouse session was taken from the Wine Business Club and Italian Wine Club. Listen in as wine lovers and experts alike engage in some great conversation on a range of topics in wine. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. And remember to subscribe and rate our show wherever you tune in. Hello, everybody. My name is Stevie Kim. Welcome to Italian Wine Club on Clubhouse. I'm just back from Purva and I saw some of our VIA community members there. So it was really, really nice to see them again. I don't see Mark, though. He's supposed to be the host tonight. Yeah, um, you're supposed to. I, I don't know. There's a bug going on right now with Clubhouse. You just have to refresh the page and he's actually here. Oh, he's, he's there. Here. Okay, excellent. Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. I see the party hat. Okay, so welcome everybody. We're going to get started. As you know, the Ambassador's Corner is where a member from the Vinital International Academy gets to choose their favorite wine producer. And they do kind of this, you know, deep dive fireside chat with the producer of their choice. And um, it's been quite a popular show. We've started, I believe, way, way back. Our first episode was with Cynthia and Alberto Tasca. Uh, way back in July, so it's been it's been about seven months now, and we are currently at what is what episode is this, Laika? Uh, okay, so this is the forty first episode right now. Oh my goodness! Forty one. Yeah. So we've been going straight, more or less, uh, forging ahead for forty one weeks now. That sounds about right. We had just a short break during the uh, Vinitali marathon period, but otherwise we've been doing it. Every single week, and that's also thanks to our clubhouse manager, Laika. So thank you, great job, Laika, for doing that. You see, also Joy with the icon, she's dancing on top of our table at the office. That's Joy. That's our Italian wine producer. So um, as you know, we get to replay this on Italian Wine Podcast. So to um, start the show now, today our the Mod Squad is. Mr. Michael Markarian. Ciao, Michael. Ciao, Stevie. Ciao, Stevie. Great to be with you. Oh, my goodness. You know, Michael, I feel like you're a spy or something because I was just Googling you. <laughs> and I don't know if you want, we can, you know, you, we can edit this part of the uh, from the podcast. But are you the same Michael Markarian from the Humane Society? Yes, I, I am. That was my, my career uh, in nonprofit work and doing animal uh, welfare before I entered restaurants and uh, wine industry. 
Oh, okay. So that that is you. I was like, that yeah. looks awfully like him, and he has the same name. I said, this is very odd, but it says nothing about that in any of the um, bio that I have of you. So Michael, of course, he was part of our flagship Vinitalin International Academy edition 2022. We just met recently, and he's he passed the exam. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It was a great, great course and great experience. Really, really learned a lot. There you go. Did you hear that, Laika, that little cheering thing? Yeah, unfortunately, it's there. <laughs> okay. What do you mean? I'm doing my special effects today. Okay, so he passed the exam. He's currently a SOM and the beverage director for um, some restaurants in Washington. Which restaurants in particular? So it's uh, three French uh, bistros in Washington, D.C. and, and Northern Virginia. They're, they're called Chez Billy Sud, uh, Café Colline, and Parc de Ville. Oh, is it owned by the same group? It's the same restaurant group, uh, same executive chef, same ownership. And I do the beverage program for all three. And one really, really um, good question for you now is, I don't want to put you on the spot, but have you got any Italian wines? I do have a few Italian wines, even though it's a French concept. I, I love Italian wines and I bring some Italian wines into the restaurant. Um, uh, they're very food friendly, great, great for our guests and great with the cuisine. Okay, excellent. Listen, Michael, so um, I know you lived in Italy for some time. What were you doing in Italy? Uh, well, my wife and I were fortunate to uh, just live in the Chianti area near Siena for almost a year. Uh, we traveled around a bit. Uh, we visited a lot of producers. Uh, took I took some classes uh, in Siena as well as in Rada. Mostly traveled and, and got to know the country and had a really wonderful experience. And it was it was part of that experience that uh, we we got to spend time at Quercivella and really really fell in love with the uh, the wines there. Aha! Uh-huh. So you give a little away. You give it a, away a bit. Um, how you found Quercivella, basically? Do you also speak Italian? Uh, not not very well. Not very well. I, I can. <laughs> I can get by on some of the basics, but uh, need to need to spend more time in there to brush up on it. So were there other reasons why you've selected um, Colchabella, specifically Sebastiano Corsia Castiglioni, um, as your guest today on the call? Well, I, the Colchabella wines are incredible. I mean, that's, that's one uh, important factor for me. I, I love the wines. But I think importantly, uh, Colchabella under Sebastiano's leadership has also been a real innovator and pioneer in a lot of different areas. They were one of the first uh, producers in Italy to become organic. Uh, They released one of the first super Tuscan white wines uh, at a time, I I think, that was was before um, people were taking Italian white wines as, as seriously as red wines. And one of the first to be biodynamic, and they really pioneered um, uh, plant-based biodynamics as opposed to using animal products uh, in the treatments, uh, which I think is, is really innovative. And, you know, secondly, as a sommelier, I'm really interested in food and wine uh, pairing and how wine works at the table. And Sebastiano and I first met uh, over a shared interest in plant-based cuisine 
and have had some really wonderful dinners together, pairing Quercivella wines with a really wide range of, uh, of, of different cuisines, you know, Japanese and Indian and others. And it really expanded my thinking on food and wine pairing and how to approach uh, food and wine pairing and thinking about um, you know, something like the umami flavors like miso and mushroom and how they match really well with something like an aged Sangiovese. And that has been really influential for me um, as someone who's, who's looking at food and wine pairing in, in exciting and new ways. Oh, my God, that sounds terribly interesting. Uh, I hope you guys will be able to um, um, talk some about that, the, uh, the plant-based food pairing. I, I'm, I'm sure we will. I, you know, okay. I think that some people often Sorry, assume... I got the sniffles. I get a bit of a cold. But, you know, I think people often assume if you don't have meat at the table, you miss out on, on big red wines. But approaching it in different ways with weight and texture of the dish... Um, you know, with flavors like, uh, especially umami flavors, like I mentioned, I think it can be really interesting, really unique, and uh, help to enhance the guest experience. Okay, excellent. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. Do you know, Michael, that actually uh, you have two um, co-ambassadors from VIA working at Colchabella? Uh, one is uh, Emilia, I don't know if you know, and Sunny. Have you, have you ever met them? Uh, I do. I do know Sonny a bit. I, I don't know Amelia, but uh, yeah, they both work for uh, Colchabella. As uh, I don't know if um, Sebastiano can confirm that, but I think um, they both still work. Absolutely. There. Okay, there you go. Ciao, Sebastiano. Ciao. How are you? Okay, so I'm going to leave you now. So you guys just take it away, and um, hopefully, I can come back for uh, if there are any. Q&A in the very end, or um, I'm going to ask Joy to take over. Okay? See you later. Thank you, Stevie. Thank Grazie. you. Uh, well, Sebastiano, it's great to be with you. Uh, really, really pleased to introduce uh, Sebastiano Cosia Castiglioni, the owner of Quercibella, uh, but also involved in so many other activities as an investor, an activist, an entrepreneur. Uh, it's great to have you with us, Sebastiano. Thank you so much, Mike, and, and thank you, Stevie, like, and Joy, as well, for, for having me uh, today. And um, to answer your question, uh, Stevie, earlier question about um, what connected Mike and, and myself, apart from the great passion that we share for wine, the most important thing is that we share a passion uh, for animals. We, we love to protect them. We want to remove them from the food chain and from any other activity where they're exploited or killed or tortured. Uh, and uh, this is what brought us together in the beginning. Uh, Mike did great work with the Humane Society. I'm also active uh, with uh, several uh, animal rights organizations and animal protection organizations uh, like Sea Shepherd and, and many others. And uh, uh, so th this is this is also the leading uh, thought that brought me to take Quercibella in the direction it's taken over the years. And and as as uh, Mike was mentioning, uh, we certainly were pioneers in in uh, becoming organic in 1988, and uh, and then taking a biodynamic route in 2000. 
although I was perplexed about uh, the the use of, of animal-based products, even if in microscopic amounts in a biodynamic uh, technique and procedures. And, uh, and so we decided to explore our own route, which is in fact much more in tune with, with Steiner's own research uh, to do away with, with uh, endogenous products. And, and we now grow our own herbs and, and, and plants that we use in the preparations. And we mostly rely on cover crops in our, in our plant-based biodynamic. But this is, this is of course a very long very long subject, but very glad to be here and happy to answer uh, any questions you have, Mike. And thank you again for having me. Well, great. Well, thank you. Thanks for for that introduction. I think we'll we'll definitely. Uh, I'd like to ask more about some of those topics, but maybe first, uh, Sebastiano, you could just tell us a bit about Quercibella for people who may not be familiar with the the wines or the brand. Uh, absolutely. In in a nutshell, Querciabella was was the dream baby of my father, who was involved in completely different activities. He was an industrialist in in Latin America, but uh, he was a very passionate and 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 uh, and knowledgeable wine connoisseur. Uh, so, um, to give an idea, by the time I was twelve, I had visited with him all the main domains in Bordeaux and Burgundy and tasted the wines. That was the kind of teaching that, that he brought uh, to me. And so he was extremely passionate about uh, excellent wine and at some point decided to have his own estate. So started with a very small piece of land in Tuscany, uh, then expanded and then I further expanded it to uh, the current size, which is uh, 130 hectares of, of vineyards, which uh, in acres, I think it's uh, it's roughly whatever it is, 400 to 500 acres of, of uh, biodynamic vineyards uh, spread around Tuscany, mostly between Chianti Classico and, uh, and Maremma. And uh, we always had a very uh, unique approach. So y- you mentioned uh, Batar before, and we'll go back to that, but our uh flagship red wine Camartina was in fact one of the very first super Tuscans at the time there was only Sassicaia and Tignanello when we started making Camartina so you can imagine that was, there was quite innovative uh as well and um you know from the very beginning we set out to uh go against uh, prejudice and 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 uh and false knowledge. So, for instance, uh, you know that many people say that uh, Merlot and Cabernet and these grapes are French grapes and they don't belong to Tuscany, which is completely wrong. Uh, Cabernet has been cultivated in Tuscany for centuries. And in fact, it was part of four uh, official wine denominations in the 1700s, so way before the French even had wine denominations. So Cabernet being grown in Tuscany is, is the most obvious thing there is, and that's why we researched that and, and developed our first uh, important super Tuscan around it. Yeah. But as you mentioned, we also, um, uh, we, we did uh, produce the first uh, white super Tuscan, which is called Batar, 
And uh, this stemmed from my father's great passion for burgundy white. Uh, I, I, every day of his life that I can remember, uh, he had a bottle of a phenomenal uh, burgundy white on the table uh, from all the variations of Montrachet, including Montrachet itself, but you know, all the various Batar Montrachet, Chassin Montrachet, and so forth, uh, to many others. And uh, so he set out to produce a white in Tuscany from uh, high altitude uh, vineyards that was made in the style of burgundy white. So fermented in barrels, by the way, phenomenal barrels that came from Burgundy for the purpose, and then uh, treated uh, like, uh, like a true burgundy white. And in fact, you've tasted it a few times, but that is a wine that develops over the long uh, term. And I've recently had uh, a bottle of 1995, which is now a perfect maturity, and it's a phenomenal wine. Absolutely no sign of, of decadence. And uh, this is, as you know, it's pretty outstanding for any Italian white. But we started with Camartina, our, our flagship red, in 1981, Batar in 1988. And then uh, we've since uh, always tried to challenge the status quo and do things in an innovative way. We're, we're not afraid, we're not afraid of, of, uh, of change and of being innovators. Well, that's, that's great. That's a, a great uh, origin. I, I want to go back to Batar a bit. That's you know, one of my favorite wines. I think one of the greatest uh, white wines, not just of Italy, but, but in the world. Um, and I would like to hear how it's changed, you know, since it was launched, um, how, how the, the name has changed or the assemblage has changed or your approach to uh, making Batar has changed over the years. Absolutely. Just a uh, little history. So in 1988, first vintage, the wine was made of uh, Pinot Blanc and Pinot Gris, and it was called Batar Pinot. Uh, Batar is an homage to the wines that my father adored, you know, the Batar Montrachet. And, uh, and it was a blend of the two Pinots. And then uh, later on, uh, Chardonnay was added as an ingredient and the Pinot Gris was dropped. And the wine now for, for many years, you know, and, and went through, uh, it became only Bata. Uh, and then we italicized the word. So it used to be spelled the French way, B-A-T-A-R-D with a circumflex on the second A. And now it's called Batar, B-A-T-A-R, uh, which was a name chosen by uh, Luigi Veronelli himself. Uh, because the French challenged us saying the word batar was part of the French AOCs. And so we decided to drop the D and assume a different name. And so now for, uh, for a very long time, so since uh, 1993, in fact, the wine has been a blend of Pinot Blanc and Chardonnay 50-50, more or less, depending on the vintage. And uh, it's, uh, it's been done in the same extremely careful way uh, over the years. And, uh, and again, it's a wine that really shows its strength at least 10 years after the vintage. Not that it's not enjoyable when it's fresh and right away, as you've tried yourself, I'm sure. But it's incredible how much more powerful and deep 
uh, it is when uh, when it, it's had at least ten years uh, to uh, develop after after being released. Yeah, another thing that you know really influenced me in terms of thinking about how to serve wine is at some of our dinners. You know, we've had Batar as the final wine after a number of reds, and you know most people would serve a white wine first at a meal, but to end with batar and its its richness and depth and, and concentration, especially in aged batar, I, I found really really interesting. Yeah, that that's a fantastic point, and you know I I routinely serve white wines after major reds at my dinners, and people are always surprised. And I'm sure we share the passion for riesling, for instance, and and Closentun is is my favorite. Trimbach's Closentun is my favorite wine to show everyone uh, what an amazing white wine can have in depth. And and I do serve uh, older vintages of Bata uh, after reds. But w- one important thing, Mike, that I think we need to and you're an ambassador, and I and I try to educate people in general as well, but. I always try to to tell people don't ever assume that you have to finish one wine before you start the next. Mm. What is fun about wine tasting is having lots of wines in front of you and going back and forth until the end of the dinner. So don't ever hesitate to go back and taste the first wine and the second and the third during different moments of a meal. Uh, the old-fashioned way of thinking there is one wine paired with one dish mm. is so boring. I don't even want to think about it. Uh, which brings me to what you were mentioning before. Wine pairing for the, for the 21st century is a completely different game. Uh, it, it's, uh, it, you know, the, the point is that beautiful flavors and aromas live together in harmony and create a fantastic experience. They don't have to be matched as if you wanted to mix them in a blender because that doesn't make any sense. Uh, What what is fantastic is the sequence of of sensations that that you experience and and how you enjoy different wines and different flavors and how they all play together. The real magic of, of a phenomenal dinner, and you and I have experienced some together and, and, and hopefully will experience many more, is that the, the overall experience plays well together. And when you look at the table and you see 14, 16, or 20 glasses with beautiful wines, and you go back to thinking and, and tasting and, and, and smelling them, and, and you think of the aromas and all the games that the, the, they played, during the night, then it's a great satisfaction. Yeah, yeah. So we, we really need to rethink the way wine and food are enjoyed. And one fundamental point is there's absolutely no need to eat corpses of dead animals uh, to enjoy wine. That is an absurdity that, that needs to stop with, uh, you know, as soon as possible. Well, I think it's a good reminder of just thinking about wine and food pairing creatively and and having unexpected pairings or unique pairings uh things that things that you don't uh assume would be would be classic or traditional what what are some of your favorite food and wine pairings if since we're on that topic maybe tell us about 
you know, some dishes or, or wines, uh, wine pairings that have been particularly memorable or surprising for you? Well, for instance, something that uh, is uh, not too often explored is beautiful uh, red wines and chocolate. Mm. And so we've had experiences where we served uh, a flight of five or six reds with different expressions of chocolate or, or you know, uh, single origin chocolates to taste just to, to explore the depth of the interaction of wine and chocolate. And, it, and it's phenomenal. Uh, our own wines, Camartina and Palafreno, both are incredible with, when paired with chocolate. So that's a little out of the of the beaten path, and I think it works really well. Which is not to say that you know a phenomenal uh, Trockenbeerenhaus Lese would not work with chocolate, but mm-hmm. it's just uh, you know to experience something different. And then there's an entire range of flavors that uh, you mentioned before. Uh, the whole depth of umami and all of its most incredible expressions uh, is the perfect platform to taste uh, beautiful red and white wines. Uh, and, and I'm a, particularly a fan of, of Asian cuisine in general. I'm a big fan of Chinese cuisine. Japanese cuisine, of course, is extraordinary. Uh, but I've uh, paired uh, beautiful white wines, for instance, with Thai food even at its spiciest, spiciest expression, and it's a phenomenal experience. So um, I think that the, the explorations can, can be infinite, and, uh, and pairings, especially for you and me as, as, as uh, lifetime vegans, uh, can be extremely uh, rewarding uh, when, when we explore the, the little nuances of all uh, the vegetables. And, just think of root vegetables and how deep they can go and think of pumpkin and everything that's roasted and then also fresh vegetables. I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, salads where you limit the, the acidic side, limit the vinegar side and, uh, for instance, serve a dressing based on tofu, which is, which is phenomenal. Tofu and soy sauce blended as a dressing for a beautiful fresh salad lends itself to perfection, to pairing with both white and red wines of substance. Well, that, that sounds wonderful. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's lunchtime here in the United States, so the, the food discussion is going to make us hungry, but it sound, sounds great. Um, I love, love Thai food, one of my favorites as well. Um, going back to some of the winemaking, I, I, I'd love to hear about some of the practices at Querchabella, both in the vineyard and in the wine cellar, that you think are really critical to achieving a house style. You have a diverse line of wines, I mean, from Batar to, to uh, Mangrana to Camertina to Turpino. But what, uh, what, what kind of practices are you using to, to create that, that diverse line of wines? Well, that, that's an excellent question. I would say that the, all of our wines have a very clear style in common. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to be as provocative and as and extreme as I always am. Okay, so uh, our wines are very well crafted and clean. Our wines will not uh, ever have defects because those are not acceptable and they're not justifiable. So reduction or, or other defects or volatile compounds 
are the result of, of uh, improper winemaking. They're not a quality. And uh, let me open a small parenthesis here because this needs to be mentioned in every place possible. Um, I cringe when I, when I hear and read again and again and again of people making wines saying they're sulfite-free uh, for different reasons. The first one is uh, sulfites are a byproduct of alcoholic fermentation. So imagine nature figured out that when sugar turns into alcohol, the two byproducts are CO2 and sulfites. Now, you can imagine if sulfites were not meant to be into wine, if nature would not have you know, made it part of the natural process of fermentation. So first thing. And then the second thing is research now confirms in a very clear way that uh, what uh, people blame uh, you know, for their allergies or, or, or any other manifestations or headaches and so forth. When people blame sulfites, they're wrong. The cause is actually compounds called biogenic amines, which are uh, similar to histamine. So, you know, what triggers allergies. And guess what? Wines made without sulfites have a much higher uh, chance of developing toxic quantities of biogenic amines. So I hope we can put the whole discussion of sulfite-free wine to rest forever and forget about it. But uh, talking about the practices that make our wine special. So uh, first of all, you know we are extremists on non-interventions, non-intervention, which means we don't add any substance during winemaking. And uh, wine drinkers should know that uh, while obviously it's absurd to spray pesticides and horrible chemical substances on grapes, most of the chemical substances that you will find in finished wines are added during vinification, even under organic standards. So we take an extreme stance on this and we do not add anything uh, during the process. We keep it under control. We control temperature very strictly, but we are very uh, keen on using only wild yeast, which means the grapes are put in the vat and they start fermenting because of the yeast that are naturally present on them and nothing is added. Uh, the horrible trend of culture yeasts coming from France imparting strawberry flavor or banana flavor to wine artificially is, is repulsive to me. And uh, so if you want a wine that really tastes of and, and expresses the territory it comes from, obviously you don't want to have endogenous yeast coming cultivated in a lab on the other side of the planet uh, to ferment your grapes. And by the way, if you have healthy and good grapes and plants, you will not need uh, these uh, cultured yeast. You will be very fine with your uh, existing indigenous yeast. Uh, another trait that's very important is um, your wine can only be as good as your grapes are to begin with. So that is why we use our own plant-based biodynamic techniques to make the soil as lively as possible. Uh, let's go back to elementary school, uh, you know, knowledge of plants. Uh, a plant is in a, in a pot uh, with soil. 
and you add water and that soil nourishes the plant. And the entire mechanism is based on microorganisms that turn whatever substance is there with the help of water uh, into nourishment for the plant. Now imagine what happens if you spray a chemical substance that kills every microorganism in the soil. Then of course the soil cannot nourish the plant. Therefore you have to use chemical fertilizers because otherwise there's nothing to nourish the plant. And there you start a cycle where you're basically nourishing a plant with substances that should not be there to begin with. Uh, reverse the entire image and look at our soil for years and years. Now it's been decades, no chemical substances whatsoever, a very live soil. The difference between dead soil and live soil is enormous. You know, normal cultivated land is dry and tends to die because of chemical substances and organic biodynamic soil is very lively. It's full of life at every level, microorganisms, insects, birds visiting from all over the place, other creatures, uh, you know, roaming all over the place. And then there's cover crops. Cover crops are plants that you plant in the soil to nourish the soil. So for instance, if you plant legumes in a vineyard, they will supply nitrogen to the soil, which otherwise gets depleted over time. So imagine our vineyards at Cuesta and you can see the pictures in our website, full of plants. We plant up to 36 different kinds of plants between rows of vines uh, to keep the soil alive and to nourish the soil back with the substances that the, that the vines normally absorb. Uh, so creating a, a wonderful uh, balance of, uh, you know, substances that go into the grapes and therefore give flavor to the wine. And <clears throat> to explain it in a very basic way, we all have tried buying, you know, or maybe, uh, you know, eating a carrot from our own garden, organic, or buying a conventional carrot from the store. One has a lot of flavor. The other one has nothing. Now imagine if you want to make wine, which is start from an organic grape that is nourished by beautiful soil and has all the flavors in the world, or from a conventional grape that has been nourished only by chemical fertilizers. The answer is obvious. Yeah, you talked a lot about the health of the soil and the health of the environment for the grapes. And we mentioned Quercibella was one of the, the first in Italy to be organic. I mean, what, what was it like at that time? Uh, what, what was the process like uh, at a time before many others were considering organic viticulture? Well, I'll tell you, the, the, there, there are different aspects to it. First of all, of course, we were uh, considered crazy, but I'm used to that. I'm, I'm always, uh, you know, uh, swimming against the main current, so I don't mind. But um, at the time, I'll tell you a funny story. I had to uh, go against my father as well. He was a very traditional person. He would not have understood organic uh, at, at all. So in 1988, I plotted with, the, with our new winemaker to turn the entire estate organic, and we did. And I told my father we had become organic only 10 years later. And I asked him a question and I said, what would you think if we turn organic today? 
and uh, and you know we turned the entire winery organic. And this is ten years after we had done it. And he said, absolutely not. It's impossible. It would never work. It's complicated, and the wines wouldn't come out. And I said, well, guess what? We've been organic for ten years now, so I guess it works. Uh, I didn't even mention to him that we when we switched to biodynamic because uh, that would have been too too much for him. But um, anyway, we were the joke of of the area. Of course, everybody said we've always done things this way. Why should it be changed? And uh, you know, lo and and behold, of course, nowadays everyone around us in Tuscany is either organic or pretends to be organic, which is still the main. Uh, the main trend, unfortunately. So people, uh, you know, claiming to be organic and in fact spraying uh, behind the scenes. But uh, we, of course, move forward with our with our very uh, advanced plans, and we are we keep innovating uh, as we go. And uh, you know, on average, everyone else is ten years behind. Fascinating, fascinating. Um, I, I'd love to hear more about the plant-based biodynamics. I mean, we know a lot of uh, biodynamic treatments uh, traditionally involve animal products like cow horns or deer bladders. What are some of the methods that you are using at Quichabella? Um You mentioned cover crops. I mean, what are, what are some of the things that are really important to your approach with biodynamics there at the estate? Well, okay, so we, we need to we need to clarify a few things. So cover crops are, are an important and integral part of biodynamics in general, and they can be practiced uh, to the extreme like we do with an enormous variety of plants and studies to see what influence the different plants and have on different vineyards in different areas, because that's very important. You may have a vineyard that's depleted of nitrogen, but you may have another one that has an excess of copper or, you know, different different mineral balances. And what you do is you analyze the soil, figure out what's missing or what's too abundant, and then you study a combination of plants that you uh, plant to bring balance back. Uh, because the basic concept is, of course, uh, you know, viticulture is a monoculture. So it's alien as a concept in nature. And what you want to do is recreate an ecosystem that brings other plants and other agents of nature inside the balance so that the soil and the small ecosystem of the vineyard uh, can bring, go back to balance itself. Then there's the other chapter in biodynamics, which is the treatment so-called. So these treatments are uh, a mixture of uh, usually cow manure, and other substances, herbs, and this and that. And normally, they, uh, these uh, substances are ripened or matured inside either a cow horn or a deer bladder or some other, you know, uh, uh, absurd, uh, you know, device like that. There's absolutely no reason on the planet to do that and to use animal parts or animal manure uh, for for the treatments in your vineyards, uh, for one thing, green manure, which is uh, you know, uh, it's it's manure that is produced uh, with plants as a main ingredient, as opposed to to cow excrements, is a much more natural fitting for uh, your environment. Consider that whenever you use animal manure, you're bringing in uh, something from somewhere else 
And it's usually cows that have eaten absolutely unnatural substances, and in some cases, even antibiotics and hormones and other stuff like that, which of course you don't want to spray in your vineyards. Uh, green manure is produced with plants that grow in the same kind of soil and in the same area where you grow your, your vines and you simply mature this, this uh, green manure, turn it into fertilizer, and it's the best thing possible that can happen. And there is absolutely no reason why this manure should mature inside a deer bladder or some other you know, devilish uh, device of the sort because it's perfect as it is and it's natural as it is. So uh, part, of our, part of our strategy is uh, to use uh, cover crops as intensely and as scientifically as we can and also uh, preparation based on green manure that we uh, create with plants that we cultivate ourselves. And uh, last but not least, I want to mention, you know, when, when people talk about biodynamics, they often <clears throat> think of the most esoteric practices that are based on positions of the planets and, and you know, and, 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 and other, and other uh, uh, pieces of information of that sort. Now, I, again, we went very deep in this and with, in collaboration with scientists, so plant biologists and other, we studied the most fundamental uh, uh, and important factor, which is the gravitational interaction between uh, the earth, the moon and the sun. As we all know, these are gigantic forces. These are the forces that move tides. They move entire oceans up and down. And uh, scientists, biologists, plant biologists have discovered that these gravitational forces have a fundamental effect on the life of plants. So the reason why you plant at certain times of the day uh, or during certain lunar phases is not esoteric uh, astrology or stupidities or, 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 uh, or prejudices. It's because the movement of sap, the movement of liquids and nutrients inside the plants changes during the day with moon phases. So you can observe as a plant biologist, the movement of liquid inside a plant drastically changing several times a day depending on the gravitational interaction between the moon and the earth. So what scientists are still studying, there isn't a full formula or a full manual of how to apply it, but basically take the old tradition and, and you know, farmers used to plant at certain times, used to harvest at certain times because they obtained different results. So based on tradition and based on contemporary studies, we're devising uh, new ways to deal with planting and harvesting that are uh, that take advantage of these phenomenal forces that are the gravitational forces, and we study that. So forget uh, constellations and stupid references to astrology, which is of course absurd. Uh, but astronomy, uh, physics, and and plant biology and 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 mathematics all together in data science are showing us a new way to approach agriculture that is in tune uh, with nature as a whole. And it, it, it makes a lot of sense when you put it in that context. I mean, think about how the gravitational pull impacts plant life and sap. 
I mean, it would certainly uh, help determine when to do things like pruning in the vineyard and, and other activities like that. Absolutely. It, it certainly does. And you, and you do see different results. Uh, I'll just tell you this. We have um, different universities in Tuscany coming to study our vineyards. And one of the things that, that surprises them is uh, if you look at the different approach to planting a vineyard, traditional way was to uh, imagine this, completely take out the topsoil, uh, rip the soil in depth, put the topsoil back, plant the vines, and then wait four to five years for the first harvest. And of course, that's because you're basically killing everything in your soil, uh, destroying the topsoil that's taken centuries normally to uh, settle and mature and, and starting from scratch. Our way to plant vineyards is we do a one year of cover crops on bare soil with no vine in sight. And of course, we don't disturb the topsoil, but we plant as many uh, plants we can to revitalize the soil as much as needed. And this is sometimes one year, sometimes two years of complete rest. Then we plant the vines. And in two years, on average, we get a plant that's the size of what you get in five years in conventional soil. And the universities are coming to study this. And it's really funny because when they have to date our plants and say how old they are, they always give them at least three years more of age because of how they developed. But imagine a plant that grows in a soil where it's happy and well-nourished and balanced and can really express its best. And that's what you get. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of complexity in the processes and absolutely uh, zero uh, superstition and prejudice and, 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 and magic, okay? So think of biodynamics as the application of, of modern scientific principles uh, based on uh, century-old or even thousand-year-old uh, traditions in farming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I've I've had the the privilege of uh, seeing your vineyards uh, in Rufoli, visiting the area. Such a such a, an area with such natural beauty, surrounded by forests. Uh, can you talk about some of your efforts to protect uh, biodiversity and wildlife in the area, and any of the conflicts that might arise? You know, with wild animals, a chingale being so close to the vineyards. Well, the, the, the harsh reality is that you need to fence your vineyards to, to keep deer and wild boars out. Otherwise, they will eat all the grapes. They have great taste. Uh, they know when their grapes are ripe and they will wipe out a vineyard in one night. So uh, you have to fence for that. Our fences are studied so that they don't disturb any other aspect of the interaction with wildlife. So every other animal roams free foxes, hares, and, and we have an enormous variety of birds, which, by the way, are the best at keeping insect populations at bay. And, and birds, of course, are super happy to uh, live and, and interact with, with all the plants that grow between our vines because they find nourishment there. And uh, this also brings me to the subject of bees, bees which are unfortunately in one of the species industrially exploited to, exploited to produce honey 
those are not the bees that keep nature alive. Uh, it's a wild species of bees that you need to nourish and, and nurture. And that's what we do again with our cover crops. So we have a gigantic population of bees that live between the forests that surround their vineyards and all the plants that we supply them with in the vineyards uh, during, uh, throughout the year. So imagine uh, the advantage of having vineyards that are pollinated by wild bees that come from the forest. That is one of the biggest advantages you have when you conduct organic and biodynamic practices the right way. That's great. Uh, we, we talked about your, your Chianti uh, estate in Greve, and you also have uh, production in the Marema in Tuscany. And one of my favorite wines uh, from the Marema, of course, is Mongrana. We pour uh, the Mongrana red uh, by the glass at our restaurant, and, uh, and everyone loves it. It's, it's delicious. Uh, and I know that you recently launched a new wine, uh, Mongrana Bianco. Um, it's new to me. I don't think I've seen it yet in my market uh, here. But can you tell us about uh, the new release, uh, the new uh, Mongrana Bianco, and how you see the Marema area playing uh, a role in the future? Well, um, it, it's a great question. So uh, Mongrana Bianco arose from the same spirit that brought the other wines from Maremma, uh, Mongrana and Turpino. And uh, it is the excitement we have of growing grapes that benefit so much from the interaction with the sea and sea air. Uh, I'm sure you've noticed in these wines, and you will notice in the Mongrana Bianco, the salty element is phenomenal. It's just undoubtedly there. And if you taste these wines and you're close to the sea, you immediately see the, the relationship and, 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 it, and it comes to you in a very strong way. So just as a, as a reminder, our vineyards in Maremma are not directly on the coast. Uh, there's the sea, then there's a phenomenal natural park called uh, Parco dell'Uccellina, which has a ridge of mountains. So we get sea air, but mediated by this beautiful natural park, a natural park where all kinds of wildlife live free all the way to the beach. So if you go to the beach on the park, which is completely wild, uh, you have wild boars roaming on the beach. You have wild, even wild cows live in this forest. So imagine the sea air mediated by this beautiful park comes across these mountains and then lands on our vineyards and, and brings uh, all sorts of flavors and, and aromas and substances that make the wines uh, very exciting. So Mongrana Bianco is the expression, the white expression of this. So it's, it's made with uh, Vermentino and it's live and crisp and salty and, and beautiful. And to my surprise, I did not expect this, but I'm seeing that as it evolves in a bottle, it gets so much deeper than we even imagined when we started making it. So uh, it's, it's a beautiful surprise. And to add curiosity, uh, I'm sure you're going to be very eager to taste it. In the most recent vintages, we will add uh, some Viognier to the blend, which I think is a perfect balance for a wine like that. Uh, it, 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 interesting. I, I, I can't wait to try it. I love Vermentino. It sounds, sounds fascinating. 
Um, back to Chianti Classico, there, there's a, a recent uh, effort that's been initiated uh, to approve the use of UGAs on the labels for Chianti Classico. So what do you think about this effort to identify subzones or a more specific sense of place for Chianti Classico wines? And do you see this as being an important um, issue in the future for Querchabella's bottlings? Well, we, we have been advocates of, of uh, mentioning zones and, and exalting zones uh, for years. And in fact, once again, we've been uh, running against, you know, the, 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 the crowd as always. So uh, to tell you how much we believe in this, I'll explain. Uh, since 2010, we have been producing what we call our crew wines. So we have single vineyard wines from three different areas. And we have uh, made these wines, we have matured them and we have bottled them and we have not released them yet. So when we release them, which uh, very likely is going to be 2023, we will have at least 10 vintages of single vineyard crews uh, that are just extraordinary. And uh, to give an idea, our friend uh, Galloni, who has, has been one of the few critics to taste these wines uh, in preview, uh, has given different vintages of these wines, 97, 98 point, uh, and, and these wines are extraordinary. So we are strong supporters and believers in, in, uh, in, in mentioning and, and, and exalting individual zones and even individual vineyards and VOD like the French have done forever. And, and, and of course we need to do as soon as possible. Well, that's, that's great to hear. Um, again, ahead of your time, getting, getting these bottlings ready, uh, single vineyard crews look, look forward to those being available on the market. Um, we're approaching the top of the hour. I, this has been a really fascinating conversation, Sebastiano. Is there anything else uh, you'd like to tell us about your efforts before I turn the floor back uh, to, to Stevie or Joy? Uh, well, first, I, I want to thank you again for the opportunity to, uh, to talk about these things. I, one thing I would like to mention is, uh, and, and it's kind of a challenge for, for everyone listening, uh, I love... Uh, approaching every activity with a new uh, view, a new eye, a new sight, a new idea. And uh, I think the most interesting approach to food and wine nowadays is leaving behind uh, the exploitation of animals used as ingredients or as food, which doesn't make sense and it's an ecological disaster, and trying to figure out new ways and new approaches to, uh, you know, a healthier, uh, more harmonic way of of tasting wine and food, and and I think that's it's 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 a challenge, but it's a fun challenge uh, to rethink our traditional menus and ideas and see them all in new light, a light that is in harmony with the planet, with nature, and with our own health. Well, Sebastiano, thank you. It's it's always great to talk to you. I, I always learn so much uh, listening to you. Uh, thanks for the conversation about uh, biodynamics and food and wine pairing. And 
the environment and everything else. And uh, great to great to be with you. And I will turn the floor back uh, to our moderator, uh, Stevie. Did you guys hear that? <laughs> we did. <laughs> um, you guys, I Sebastiano. First of all, um, Michael, thank you so much for choosing Sebastiano. I had never listened to him before. It was absolutely. I was supposed to go away actually earlier, uh, but I wanted to stay because your uh, presentation of especially the biodynamic farming is mesmerizing and very Thanks. incredibly convincing. Um, I would, Sebastiano, where do you live? Do you live stateside or? Uh, or normally in Italy? Switzerland, but I'm in the States very often. So I, I think we need to get you back, both of you, because uh, we, I would love to have you at Wine to Wine. Uh, Michael, maybe you can moderate. We should definitely present this to a larger audience. I don't know if you know, we do a wine business forum every year towards towards November. We're, we'll give you some details. And if you can come back live in person and present this to a larger audience, I, would, I think everyone would absolutely be floored well, by thank your beyond, expertise. Uh, and and just the, you're such a great presenter. Thank I, I, you know, I'm, I was tongue-tied, basically. I was a little, you know, I was doing multitasking in the beginning as well. But I, as I was listening to you, I said, we, we need to get this dude back. Thank you so much for doing that. And Michael, great job. You, you are a great ambassador in choosing uh, Sebastiano. I love everything that you have said. And I think it will be terribly interesting for not just our students, and the VIA community, but everybody. Um, so I hope you can really come back. I do have to close up the room um, because um, I have another thing to do at seven o'clock. Um, Laika, do you want to tell us our next um, clubhouse call? And Stevie, hey, I'm uh, sorry, Laika, to interrupt you, but I want sure. to thank you and I, I will certainly be happy to join you. I have to I have to jump off as well. So I want to say thank you to you and, and Mike and everyone and everyone who listened today. And unfortunately, I need to jump. But thank you so much. I will absolutely be in touch. Yeah, there's a dude just saying, Luke McDonald. Hello from Tokyo, Japan. Amazing discussion. I agree. Detailed presentation. Very interesting. Learn about your wines. Thank you, Sebastiano. Thank, so thank you, you very much. much. I think we can sign off. Um, Laika, just quickly, who's coming up next? Okay, it's going to be on Thursday, May 19th. That will be 6 p.m. the same time. Uh, Scott oh my God, Thomas that's this and week. Enrico Roberto. Yeah. Okay, very good. Thank you, everybody. Ciao, ragazzi. Ciao. Thanks for listening to this episode of Italian Wine Podcast, brought to you by Vinitali Academy, home of the gold standard of Italian wine education. Do you want to be the next ambassador? Apply online at vinitaliinternational.com for courses in London, Austria, and Hong Kong, the 27th to the 29th of July. Remember to subscribe and like Italian Wine Podcast and catch us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you get your pods. You can also find our entire back catalog of episodes at italianwinepodcast.com. Hi, guys. 
guys, I'm Joy Livingston and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.